23rd of April 1942, same same day as Bobby Rydell. He's a, quite a famous singer when I was young. My grandparents came originally from from Scotland to New Zealand and then to Australia in a wholesale hardware business called Briscoe's and they had these hardware stores um, in New Zealand and in about three or four cities in Australia. And my grandfather lived in Melbourne um, and the hardware stores in West Melbourne, very close to the West Melbourne Stadium, which some people might know where it is. All his brothers went to Scotch College because they are Presbyterians. He was the youngest brother and they thought it was better to send him to a different school. So I sent him to Geelong Grammar. I don't know that he got on particularly well with his brothers because everybody knew him as Scotty and that's because he had a bad temper. Anyway, he went to Geelong Grammar and he really enjoyed that because he found rural, a lot of rural people, which he hadn't known before, and became very good friends with them and stayed with them and that sort of thing. And that, I think, um, introduced him to farming life. But his father said to him, no, no, you've got to come back and join the family business and sell nuts and bolts and all sort of thing. Which, which is what the business did. Anyway, he got TB when he was probably in his late 20s, about 27, I think. And in those days, TB was a pretty uh, serious uh, problem and he spent about a year in bed and then a year convalescing before he got over it. And during the period before he got that, it was the Roaring Twenties and he led a very social life, reading his diaries. He wrote very detailed diaries of not just his movements but his thoughts on what was happening. He was born in, in 1904, so probably in the early 20s, you know, he was roaring around doing all sorts of things and not doing much work. Anyway, one of the long-term cures for TB in those days was to get away from the coastal atmosphere to come to the dry inland. And he'd been to school with a person called Gilly Northcote and he came up here and looked around and finished up buying the place next door. That was in 1931. He really didn't know much, literally nothing about farming at all, but it was fortunate during the Depression there were plenty of people from farming backgrounds that were looking for work. And he had someone come, come and work for him that sort of set him on the path to being a being a farmer. And one of these surprising things, because he led this extremely social life when he lived in Melbourne, and, and his whole life changed, and, and, he, and he thought he was going to die. And reading his diaries, when he thought he was going to die, it was quite interesting. And it, it just changed his life because he became almost totally antisocial from leading an extremely social life in the Roaring Twenties in Melbourne. And he bought the, before he was married, he, he had also been engaged to someone and I've looked through his diaries. I just don't know whether that's where he caught his TB from, the girl he's engaged to. So he came up here and single man, unbelievably remote in those days, old cars, literally no roads. He had met my mother because she came from Corowa and he he knew a few people from Corowa, partly he'd been to school with like Gilly Northcote across the road and he'd been up to the picnic races in Corowa and, and met, met my mother. And ultimately he married her. She'd been to Clyde School. She'd been school captain. She was five years younger than him. So, like, how long did you not have electricity for? Your whole childhood? Uh, no, I probably got it about, oh, well, almost my whole childhood. Probably got it in the in the mid-50s, so when I was in 15 or so, 13 or 14, yep. And we had our own generator before then, which was 32 volts, which was only good for, for lights. You couldn't heat, use heating or or dishwashers or hot water or anything like that. So when the power came, it would have been in about the mid-50s, I reckon. Yeah. I mean, what did you guys used to do for entertainment at night? Did you listen to the radio or read books, play games? <sighs> well, the radio barely worked. We just have one on thing, which run off the car thing like a car battery. 
Um, it was crackly and scratchy and was pretty hopeless. I know during the day I, I had a nice sort of like playing outside and I had a bit of a hole in the ground which I dug and it was my dam and I used to sail, you know, play with boats and sheep and things on the bank of it and all that sort of stuff. Uh, I remember doing that a lot of that. I don't know exactly where that was. I guess in the day I probably went out with my father quite a bit around the farm. When you say you were really isolated, so to get into, say, Rand, hmm. did you used to take it like, was that in a car or on a track would be, with would, horses? Would, it would have been by car. We, so, yeah. so I always had a car. My father, in my early days, only had a ute, didn't have yes. an actual car. Yeah. And then obviously during the war it was, it was very difficult to buy cars because you couldn't get all the steel was going into mm. armaments and the like. So he got the first car that I can remember in 1948. I often wonder how we all, the four of us jammed into the ute. I really do. I can't actually remember, but but we did. Um, and the utes weren't as wide as they are now. Yeah, right. Yeah, and, but I went to school. In those days primary schools were basically about 10 miles apart so that the kids could get there on horse or, or bike. And I used to ride a bike four miles to a school called Burndale, which was the other side of, not the, not the Rand side of us, but the other side. Just the living standards we had. We had a kerosene refrigerator. Don't have a thing like deep freeze. And kerosene refrigerators are very unreliable. So you, we were past the Coolgardie safe. You know the Coolgardie safe, which is a, a box with wet hessian. Around just to keep keep meat and things cool, yeah. not cold. Well, we were we were past that, but it wouldn't be long prior to that where you'd have what everything's what's kept in what was called a cool guardy safe. But it was pretty ordinary. My mother used to make ice cream, and sometimes it'd be ice cream, sometimes it'd be cream, because it wouldn't get cold enough. Um, but you know, kerosene lamps and all that sort of stuff. We used to sleep on a, on a sleep out with three sides was flywire. I don't quite know how we used to do it, but anyway, we did. <laughs> And I used to get pretty tall, like children, I remember. But yeah, my parents used to say sleep in a sleep out too. We used to play the schoolyard a lot. You had a, a thing with about half a dozen rocks in it. Yeah. You're in, in a line, you're behind it, this is your zone there. Yeah. And the other ones did too. And it's a matter of trying to race up and pinch their rocks, or they come and race up and pinch ours. Oh, wow. I just what it's called. I can't remember the name of that it, it, it was actually quite, it was quite vigorous. So that's what I certainly remember doing that, uh, yeah, from those, those early years. We might have ball we kicked around, yeah. but we didn't ever say, never had boots or or play footy and I don't think – I strongly expect the, the Rand footy team didn't have juniors. Mm. Yeah, but um, I know a bit – I don't think they did. I can't remember. I know the footy was pretty rough. That There weren't many cars. A lot of people didn't have cars and – Hear stories about them carting all the footballs around the back of a truck to games and things. It's just unbelievable. <laughs> Middle of the bloody winter, you know. A bit out of timing, but but Gail and I, my other guy, we started the football netball carnival. That's they've had thirty something of them, and it's unbelievably successful now. They get hundreds, hundreds of kids. Well, well, my mother's had three brothers, and yeah. they all went off to the war. Now my name's Angus Allen John McNeil. Now, why I've got John on my name is my uncle John was a prisoner of war in Italy during the war, and he didn't think he'd, didn't think he'd ever get out alive. And he asked my mother if she had a child to name him name that child after him. That's why I got John. We have another brother, another brother. He he was badly wounded, and he came back. He they must have let them out if they badly injured out of prison war camps and sent them home somehow. And he got home earlier, but he was lame the rest of his life. 
one leg shorter than the other. But there's three of them. It's Alistair, Rodney and John. Three of them. And one of these, my mother said how her mother, you have your three sons over in Europe fighting a bloody deadly war. She said it used to really affect her mother, my grandmother. And they all came home? They all came home, yeah. My mother's father was the solicitor in Corowa. He was a solicitor. Her next question was, what oh, was it like? Do you remember what it was like uh, when you went to boarding school? I used to ride my bike there. I did that for two years. And one of the reasons, I, my sister went away after three years it ran, and I went to boarding school after two. One of the reasons was, which would be a very tough thing to do, since you your child away to boarding school, seven years old, was that they one teacher school, multi-grade. Primary school teachers only had one year's training and the teacher we had there at that stage apparently wasn't interested in little kids. He's more interested in older ones. And we had one one girl there that was probably about 13 or 14 doing secondary study as well. So they thought having two years playing with plasticine and doing jigsaw puzzles was enough. I should go to school and, and I, so I went to boarding school when I was seven. Well, I can tell a few stories about it. I, because I was, I was pretty shy, it was probably fairly traumatic, I'd imagine. And I was in, in a dormitory called the Attic, which is upstairs at the boarding house we're in, and there was probably about half a dozen kids in that dormitory. And I know we had one five-year-old boy. Quite a few of the little tackers used to try and run away, and they used to come up to the Attic because they could get down the fire escape because I think the, the downstairs doors were locked, so I'm getting out. <laughs> So we'd be asleep and there'd be some kid come up with his worldly positions and a pillow sleep over his shoulder and and try and run away. But the police used to put him back fairly quickly. <laughs> Did you ever try to run away? No, no. No. I I, I suppose I suppose I was all right. I, one of the one of the vivid things I do remember, one of the which which is a good thing, boxing was compulsory. And I never boxed in my life. So I had this bloody bloke that who could box, I was belting the shit out of me if he Week and we went into boxing. <laughs> so I said, I've got, to, I've got to learn that. And I finished that. When I got to junior school, I finished up being boxing house captain because I had long arms. It made it a bit easier. <laughs> but I really didn't play. I didn't, because I never played football. A lot of the kids had played football. <sighs> there was a tennis court there. I can't think whether we played much black tennis. I, I, at that stage, I hadn't played much tennis. And I think, say, I was three years at Bostock House. Three years, this is probably right, three years of junior school in uh, at a cryo. Bostock House is actually in Geelong itself. Three years of junior school and then a senior school. And I really can't remember paying much support. I mean, I've got a team piece of the football team, which which I wasn't in it, obviously, because I didn't play for footy. But there's one guy there, Peter Stewart, who, who who played for North Melbourne and played for Victoria. It was not the same, my, my same year of school. So there was football, but I wasn't – I probably did play a bit of tennis. Yeah, I can't yeah. remember. Is that when you started running in junior school or did you wait? Oh, junior, junior, junior school. Mm. Yeah. Your father said you could mm. try yourself out as a distance runner, so you were always good at running. Mm-hmm. I had this few records and things. Um, and he was a quite good runner himself. I know I had long legs. I mean, I didn't realise I was a good runner until I started winning a few things. And I had the school. And cross country is what I did, long distance. Timber top, you know, I held record or two up at Timber top. But... When I was younger, I didn't sort of realise that I was equal to running. I had John Landy, John Landy teaching me. He taught me. John what, Landy. John Landy taught you? Mm. Didn't teach me run, but taught me exercise. What do you remember of John Landy? Oh, a few things. I, I wrote a few things when he died the other day. We had a bit of an email session. Oh, he's a, he's a dreamer sort of a dude. Was he? Oh, yeah, very. 
I mean, he was, he was teaching me at school in the 56 Olympics when he was running, you know, f- full-time teacher yeah. and still running the Olympic Games. And did you guys go and see him run at the Olympics? Um, bloody nearly might have seen him run, run the mile. It was a mile in those days. Yeah. I can remember him training and just running back and forth across the oval. And one thing I, I remember, because he then went to Timbertop when I was at Timbertop, followed me up to Timbertop, and he used to he used to drink a glass of water with a tablespoon of salt in it because he must have, I don't know whether he died of bloody archery bucked up or something, but but something you certainly wouldn't dream of doing these days. Right. <laughs> so those days it's only water. <laughs> but it's a bit of a dream. I remember coming in one day to teach and, and he only shaved half his face. He forgot to do the other side and that sort of thing. Oh, so he just. <laughs> <laughs> he was a bit dreamy. He was too focused on his running. Timber when he went Timber Top, he would have given up running. That was 57 I went up there. He, I think he gave it away after the Olympic Games. But he taught me two years once at Corio and once at Timber Top. He never, and I never asked him, I suppose I could have, what should I, how should I run? But but someone did ask him, oh, how's Angus going with his running? Oh, he just runs and puts his leg in river their hands. <laughs> no style, just. You talk about Timbertop and say, yeah, um, nearly totally cut yourself off from the boys at Geelong Grammar, apart from three or four that had been part of my hiking group at Timbertop. Yeah, yeah well, the six of us that got got friends friends in, in junior school. We must have been all the same. There's three houses in junior school. We must have been all the same house. But 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 we sort of stuck together right through school, even though when we got to senior school, they in different houses. Mm. And at Timbertop, we're, we're in different units, but we stayed to, stuck together and, and hiked. I actually tried, we were down, we got a house at Bowen Hinch, you might realise, down the Easter time, and I, I, and I wanted to get, there were six of us, two of them have died, there's four of us left. I tried to get them all to have lunch together so we could reminisce on our Timbertop days. Um, the people that didn't like Timbertop, the people who are good at traditional sports, and the academic ones because there's no traditional sport, none at all, and the focus is more on outdoor activities rather than academic achievements. So the people who are academic got a bit bored with it and didn't because they often didn't like running. We had to do two two cross countries a week, um, and then we had races. Well, one of my one of my quite good friends came from uh, came from Mornington or somewhere down there. I don't know whether you ever heard of Percy Percy Serity. No, he was a very famous trainer of distance runners and trained them running up down sand hills down there and he'd said to me um, I could go and stay with them and and join the Paris, Paris, Percy Serity training squad but uh, I mean I never take it super seriously so I didn't really know how good I was or whether I could would have made any use of it or got anywhere but it would be an interesting thing to just test yourself out see how good you were and I subsequently had quite a few knee problems. So um, the guy I initially went to with my knees, and I remember he sort of x-rayed them and scanned them and had a screen beside me, which I could see. And he said the bones tend to be a bit honeycombed yeah. and they have a, a white hard coating over the outside of them. And he said the white coating on my knees was very thin. And if I had come to him and, and said I'm going to be a professional runner, he said, well, you'll... Yeah, I ran a bit professionally because in those days, those days, I wish I was younger, like all the fun runs they have now, I would have loved to have done that. Yeah. That didn't exist when I was young. And um, this is probably digressing slightly, but 
I had a bit of a bad back and, and they told me I'd just grown too quickly. And I looked up exercise and I found some American army sort of routine for exercise and I got myself reasonably fit and a bit stronger and I thought, well, doing all this, I might as well do something with it. So I used to run as a professional. Oh, really? Stall and Bendigo and all those sort of places. But the, but the, the races weren't quite long enough. I, I, I liked sort of six miles or that sort of stuff. The longest I go was, was two miles. But I did that because if I'm going to get bloody fit, I might as well. Yeah. So I didn't drink at that stage. So one thing to do is say, if, if I hadn't come from a farm, I don't know whether I've broken my neck to be a farmer. I wasn't particularly smart, but I, a couple of things I, I would have perhaps liked to do was, would, would be psychology and, and understanding people and helping people. I say that. And the other one, would, I actually would have quite liked to join the diplomatic corps. I would have, would have quite enjoyed that too. Those are the two things that sort of exercised my mind that I might have done had I not come from a farm, but I don't think I regret it because there's no doubt farming, I mean, you're self-employed for a start, but you do have a lot more freedom in what you can do, whereas most jobs where you're nine to five, five days a week type thing, um, you can't do what I've been able to do. When I wasn't married, so I didn't get married until I was 35 or something, I was contemplating, if I didn't get married, is to join some charity, volunteers abroad or something like that. I would have liked to go on. Obviously, I, I support a couple of kids now around Africa and that sort of thing, so mm. I would have liked. That's the sort of thing I would have liked to have done. What do you love about being a farmer, though? Oh, the outdoors and the freedom to do what you want to most of the time. And I actually quite like physical work. So, yeah, I, I think it's just... The outdoors and the freedom, do do your own thing, and you you get the rewards for your efforts. I mean, there's a lot of jobs you don't get the reward for your effort. Farming is probably one of the ones you get the reward more than any other um, for your efforts and the way you operate your business. I think farming almost more than not. Yeah, there's probably some that do as well, but farming, there's so many different things you can do that can make it good or bad. So, um, and I never. Never, I never did any any academic after school. I did one sort of correspondence course, I remember. Um, whereas a lot of the kids now go to a college or Marcus Oldham or somewhere, like Darcy, he went to Marcus Oldham. It was, it's more technical now than what it was when I started, so that's probably more important. Um, but whether I would have been a better farmer, had I done that, I don't know. Yeah. Well, my philosophy on life is that... Um, Generally speaking, most people, I think, when you give something to somebody, the giver often gets more out than the receiver. So that's one of my philosophies. I got a lot out of helping people. Whether you never get thanked, doesn't matter, but you, you feel like you go to bed at night. That's one of the things I say. You go to bed at night thinking that, oh, that was good. So tell me how you got into to football. Oh, school. played Obviously yeah. school. Well, the advantage is being tall. <laughs> you can bet easy to get in the team sometimes because you're tall. And I never I ne- never played first. So I played one game in the first. And that's one of the things, if I'd gone back for that extra year, I would have played in the first football team. But I came home and I was, I was fit and ran and jumped and all sorts of things. So I played here and I played, I did three sessions in over Murray yeah. pre season, one in North Albany and two in Corowa. But I couldn't really play there because beginning of the football season, we're putting a crop in. And you had to go to training twice a week and I couldn't do it. So I played one, one game with Cora and 
So this is when you started to really meet people because you say, I didn't know any of the local people as our family weren't very social. So playing sport was a great way to get to know the lots of locals. I did miss out on a lot of the social life as I didn't start drinking until I was about 25 mm. and all the after-sport activities were in the pub. Mm. So tell me about how you joined the footy club and then became the president <laughs> of the Rand Football Club. That's, that's well, as I say there, I'm sure you've been in meetings where the president or secretary resigns and, you know, There'd be 15 people in the room and go, no, 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 no. After I've been around the room a couple of times, I said, well, I'll do it without having a bloody clue. And I think that was probably good, good for me. I learned a lot because I'd never, I've probably only been to about one or two meetings in my life. I had to be president, I wouldn't have a bloody clue. That sort of established me, I think, in the, plus been a good footballer. I was a pretty handy footballer. Yeah. So that got me going. On one, on one occasion, this was brought home to me when I parked the car, sports car, right. in a slot at the league grand final reserve for club presidents and the man in charge of mine then said, this is reserved for club presidents. <laughs> there was a thing we used to we used to have at Jerulri called the Jerulri Roundup, which is like a, a bit like a BNS, but it was it was designed for, because you, you actually invited people, you just didn't rock up, you invite people, and, it was in, and, the, and the host used to pay and didn't expect the people they invited to play. It was designed for the jackaroos to repay the hospitality of the people they got hospitality from while they were jackarooing. And I was the president of that at one stage, and uh, it was a big piss-up sort of thing. And I think that might be the first time that, God, I better have to be. I'd had the odd beer or two, but I really didn't drink. I sort of, I must have, the penny must have dropped, and it was actually, actually a working bee prior to that we Used to have a recovery in a wool shed and was out there bloody cleaning out the wool shed and cleaning it all up. And, and I think, yeah, that's someone said, have a beer or something. And I think that was almost the turning point. Yeah, in a carload that included my uncle John Sounds Strong, fine, yeah. Mr. Northcote, Northcote, he said it was, mm-hmm. had been the local shire councillor. We were talking about who would stand for his position on the Urana Council, and my council said, my uncle said, why not me? So tell me about how you got on the Urana <laughs> Council. Oh, I was there. I, I, I don't know because I was just two years president of the footy club. Whether I was still president of the footy club, I was still only about 23 or 4. And I said, oh, yeah, here we go. So I put my hand up and it says they got elected and one person voted against me and ran, which I thought was probably my mother. <laughs> Why do you think it was your mother that voted <laughs> against you, Angus? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> So began another interesting step in my life. I was 23 years old and the youngest councillor by at least 40 years, I can imagine, and the youngest councillor ever elected to the Uranus Shire. The Albury Wodonga Growth Corridor. Love to hear your opinion and perspective on that. Well, that's the sort of thing that Harry Hutton would have said to me, well, you be the delegate from the council on this particular committee. And I was obviously interested in that sort of stuff. And as I say there, there was a big a big committee of 21 with seven councillors, seven public servants and seven private people. And it was in the early days of trying to encourage people to leave the, the cities. And Aubrey, Aubrey has always had the problem. You, because it's right at the dead end of the state, it doesn't get much much help. And I remember one of the surveys that was done, that they surveyed the supermarkets, for instance, and said, where does all the products you've got on the supermarket shelves come from? 80% of it came from Melbourne. So whatever they did in Albury benefited Melbourne, not, not Sydney. So it was a huge battle to get the government to put money into making 
encouraging development in along the border in Albury in particular. And the federal government made it the growth centre. Probably going to spend a huge amount of money. What they did, I think it's made Albury a, a lot better planned city than Wagga, for example, because it was planned. Wagga leapt ahead of Albury in growth because it didn't have the restrictions that Albury did. But in the end of the day, I think Albury is a better planned city. So we, they had a, a chap called Neville Wiley who was the CEO of this group and had a girl who was the secretary. It's a huge area. So I went from Tumbrumba to the South Australian border. And we had a we the government had a program, I can't get this quite right. 603010, I think it was. The individual put in this is to the development, buy the block of land and get that set up. The individual put in 60%, the state government put in 30%, and the local government put in 10% yep. of developing a block. Yep. And that was the biggest incentive we had to try and encourage people to come come down here and set up businesses. And the paper mill would be one example that we had a winner yep. from. And Borg Warner, which was Borg Warner, there was a couple of big ones we won. The tax office, that might have been after me, but it's the sort of body that's there now, it's the same sort of job as trying to lure those people down here. For every primary job we get, in other words, somebody work in the tax office, they're not taking the place of any such a new job, it creates two and a half other jobs. By the time they spend their money, and the person they spend it on spends it, spends it, spends it. It's, it creates work for two and a half other people. But that was a battle we had. And we used to argue that the, the, the cost of setting a business up in Albury is minuscule by the the price of land and the sewage and water and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. But it was a battle, as you know. And uh, I mean, you're lucky you can live in Albury and get a fantastic job. But the issues frequently were as more and more women started to work, there's not suitable jobs for the women. Therefore, they won't come. Do you want to talk more about your time at livestock and grain producers? Well, once again, I think that was that was very interesting. And one of the things I've, I say to Gail, quite, I've never given up now, but I've made a lot of friends because you frequently stay there the night after you after you had the, the board meeting, and you go out to dinner and have a few beers. And a lot of the people I made really good friendships with, I lost contact with, and I always I threatened a number of times to jump in my car one day. And drive from here to the Queensland border and catch up with some of those people, but I've never done it. From there, I got onto the, the barley board and the grains board, and I was chairman of the grains committee during a pretty turbulent era when they were deregulating the grain industry, and that was pretty divisive in the in the agriculture committee. And I got a fair bit of abuse because I was supporting the deregulation of it, and people writing letters in the paper telling me what a dickhead I was. <laughs> Where's that effect? Yeah, I think I made a, a reasonable contribution there and I enjoyed it. And because I was in the Grains Committee, that's when I, how I got on the Barley Board and ultimately the Grains Board and travelled overseas selling bloody. China, Japan, Taiwan, and South Korea. Yeah, Barley, barley predominantly. That would have been super interesting. Do you have any recollection, any funny stories from, from that time? Well, one of the funny stories is you'd, that's, that's when China was just. I always thought I'd been to China previously because I stayed with a friend of mine in Beijing and had a bit of an understanding. I was just, just after the Cultural Revolution. I just started to free up. And and part of their culture has been drinking beer. So it's silly to go to a country that's not used to drinking beer to try and sell raw material for beer. So I came back to the Bali board or whatever it was and said, oh, I think we should be trying to get into the Chinese industry. The Foster's had just started up over there and so did Heineken, one of the other international breweries, to make better beer because – when we go over there, we'd go to a brewery and they say, 
nine o'clock in the morning, we'll taste our beer, and it's just like very bad home brew. And the traditional way of Chinese drinking a beer, they go to the brewery and get a jug of beer, and they take that home and left the beer for the week. Be sitting in a jug on the shelf. Oh. You imagine what it was like, oh, and that's the sort of beer it was. And then I was there a bit later on, and I was in the Sheraton Hotel in Shanghai. I was drinking a beer. I was not drinking beer there, sir. Uh, with an English bloke who was over there doing something in the car industry, over the set of the car industry. And I just had a chat to him about 11 o'clock at night. And I walked out. And the next thing I know, I wake up in the service elevator three floors below where I was. I've got a huge gash over my eye. My suit's ripped. I had my ticket and passport everything on me and hadn't been stolen. Now, I don't know. This is a supposition. The more I learn about China, the more I think this supposition is correct. There's somebody in that bar that used to get a kickback from us and they knew that I was a spokesman for the barley industry. I'll taste this bastard trick or two. And I had all the stitches in my eye up here and everything. Now, I can give no other explanation. I remember walking out of the bar, but that's what I remember. And because and, late at night, the service elevator is where all the kitchens and everything are, and it was stopped down there. Now, one of the things I regret, I, I, I just don't know how long I was down there for, unconscious. So that was quite interesting. I came came back here and went went to a doctor and about this, these stitches in my, in my all my eyebrows there, and he said, he said, where'd you get this? This is stuff they we string tennis rackets with. <laughs> Tell me all this involvement with Susan and how come you got the AM? I, I, I don't know any well, of Well, I, I don't think the AM would have much impact on this. Well, but tell I, me about Susan. Well, I was on the state executive. Nick Griner, when Nick Griner became Premier of New South Wales, yeah. he had very little input from rural people. And the, and the state council of the, of the Liberal Party used to vote people onto these rural committees. And we, I and a girl called Gillian Story who came from Yass, said that's bloody hopeless because you don't get the right people. So we said we will form a committee to advise Nick Reiner. And we went to see Nick Reiner and he said, no, I've got enough bloody committees without another one. Anyway, in the end, he said, yes, we will. And we used to meet in his office once every month or so. And I've been on the state executive for the Liberal Party as well. So we'd picked our committee and Bill Heffern was one of them. So I didn't know him much. I probably met him. I didn't know him at this stage. And I would say that was one of the footsteps for him to become a senator because it sort of got, it exposed him to a different people and, and a different sort of group. And I've, so I've been involved in the Liberal Party and I, and I was on the state executive. I did it for a year because Bill said he wanted another rural person on the, on the executive. And I said, oh, Bill, I'll go. It was a bloody Friday night and I'd drive up there and drive home in the middle of the night and some bastards, back when you had to put money to, in the toll, I'd left some money on my dashboard and someone smashed my bloody window to get the money off the dashboard and had to drive home in the middle of winter with a bloody broken window. Um, anyway, anyway, I was involved in a party and I was involved in the peak group in the Farrell electorate. And it was Tim Fisher's seat. Tim's there for life. He's the same age as me. He's been there for a long time. Um, I, I got uh, to be a Senate press elect that's bill. That's okay. And he bloody resigned. And all these in Aubrey put their hand up. I want to stand a little pay for Farrell. And I said, no, no, they've got a bloody hope when you get bloody seat out here and everything. And I went to a function in in Wodonga where Bromham Bishop was speaking. And I was sitting next to a guy and talking, as you do, and there'd just been the pre-selection in Indi. And Sophie Mirabella, Sophie Monopolis, had beaten Susan pre-selection by one vote. And he's telling about this girl that came second. 
And I said, shit, that's for me. Well, now has been a shearer's cook and can fly planes and all that sort of stuff. Her background, that's the candidate from heaven for me. So I rang her up. I said, Susan, would you think about coming across the border? To have her go, no, 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 I just my ass kicked. And she's worked in the tax office. She'd be working in Canberra. She just decided to move down to Albury, work at the tax office in Albury. She said, the furniture truck's just about driving out the drive now. I'm back in Salangata. I'm not coming over. So I said, well, you better come over and we'll talk to you. So she comes over. We meet in this bloody cafe in, in Dean Street. And as you would, I'm standing there looking around for some strange girls going to walk in. <laughs> so she walked in and we talked into it. So that's how she started. We had no bloody members. Nothing. I, so I, I say to Gail, this is the greatest achievement of my life. And she says, no, marrying me was. <laughs> After we convince her. But she won by 206 votes. Now, one of the reasons she won for 206 votes, when we saw where she's drawn on the ballot paper, she was halfway down or further. And, oh, God, no hope you don't get the donkey vote. But the Labor guy was strictly above her. And I, I counted them, scrut- scrutineered. A lot of – didn't one, two. After her, uh, above her, yeah. rather than one there and go back to the top. Come yeah, down. they went one, two, three, yeah. four. Mm. I reckon that got her in. <laughs> was that a great – do you remember that night that she oh. got in? Like, was it a oh. great victory? Oh, unbelievable. It, it, it took about a week to do it. And people suddenly got interested because Susan looked like she might win. And Bronnie Bishop came down and helped scrutiny because she really knew which votes of bloody weren't valid ones. It was it it was yeah, quite an interesting. I think that's really interesting. <laughs> How long has Susan been in? in- twenty one years. Twenty one years. Yeah, and I've been a campaign manager ever since. And she took six months off work, and she got a caravan which is still parked in my shed, painted up with all Liberal Party and name, and drove around the electorate, booked a flat in Aubrey. And I did a fair, fair bit of work for her, yeah. And so are you still a member of the Liberal Party now? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I've stepped back from that anymore, but well, I'm still Susan's campaign manager. I'm a secretary of the Coral Branch, and, but we're just working on a few things, Liberal Party. Regenerated, because we're regenerating a bit, get young people like you involved. Mm-hmm. That's my last thing. So what else are you doing now? Like what other standout um, kind of community achievements have we not covered? Well, one thing I mentioned briefly was the Brand Football Netball Carnival and, and we were raising money to build our new pavilion and Gail and I and a fellow called Warren Jones started that and we had uh, Graham Hyde was the teacher um, who was very keen on sport and his son played for Richmond and played, coached Aubrey, Tim Hyde, I think his name was, um, and he, did, he shook his head, oh, no, it won't work because we really need to sell it through the schools, primary schools in particular. So that was a bit of a battle, but we got the first one off the ground and success and then he realised success and joined and that's what helped grow it to where there's now, I would think there'd be, well, there be a couple of thousand people here, but there's about four different levels from netballs from under seven to under 12 or 13. And, and yeah, the kids just love it for some reason or other, apart from the foul, foul weather. Parents probably don't like it very much, standing around freezing. But it's, it's made a lot of money for the school and for the community. Unbelievable amount of money. We don't charge to get in, but I usually do the gate and we go ask for donations. Generally speaking, of the hundreds, I'd, I'd be one or two that give us nothing. Most of them give us five bucks or something. So, so that's all for Rand Public School, is that all? For Pu- public all school and, and the sports ground. It was originally just the just the sports ground, but when we yeah. when the school got heavily involved, um, they they share it. I'll tell you another story. We all used to drink at a hotel called the Botanical on Domain Road. Mm. 
So if ever I went to Melbourne on a Friday, you'd go to the Botanical Hotel and you'd see who's there and watch what's happening the weekend. I'll wind back slightly. I remember reading the Weekly Times and, and reading how people had been to back to somebody you'd never heard of and said, God, why would you bloody bother doing that? Um, and we had a back to Rand, which I was part of, and, and I suddenly realised how people enjoyed coming back to a community when a whole lot of people would be there. They'd see the whole lot rather than come back this weekend, this one person, one of their friends there. So I got quite enthused about Bactus. Now, the Botanical Hotel was was iconic. All real people used to live there and a lot of people would have met their future wives there and it's unbelievable. So what I thought I'd do, I'd have a back to, back to the bot. I had one attempt to get a committee going. It didn't work very well. And one of the people said, no, no, have another go. So we, I got a committee together. We booked the Melbourne Town Hall. We had 700 people come, raising money for Alzheimer's. And that was people that talk about that say it's the best night they've had in their lives. You couldn't work one step without bumping into something you knew. I mean, various other aspects of it, but one was that the, the Melbourne Town Hall had never run a – they quoted us. They never run a, a function with so many bloody beer-drinking rural guys. We drank them out of beer by about 10 o'clock at night. I'll have to go out and get some more beer. <laughs> no, that, that was, I think that was unbelievable what, what we did there. Unbelievable. I've got a good friend of mine who's, who's a real character. He's great at making noises like a car or something. And, and I used to have a moustache. And he was, and he had his blue single on under his dinner suit. And, and he was going to stop the band and was going to make out he was shearing and, while someone shaved my moustache off. But the problem was that so much noise couldn't get them shut up, so we couldn't do it. <laughs> Why is giving back so important to you? Oh, I'm lucky. So I sponsored two two kids in Africa, and I've been over there to see them. And it's unbelievable what you can do, what a dollar can do over there. And that started. I'll tell you when that started. After the Vietnam War, they were bringing orphan children and people to Australia. I've got nothing against them coming to Australia, but I felt that they were better staying in their own culture and support them in their own culture and language and everything like that. So that's when I got involved in Foster Parents Plan to try and support people in their own country. So that started me through Foster Parents Plan and I sponsored kids in Southeast Asia and now I've got in in Africa. But that's why I thought I'm so bloody lucky. Why can't I help people and when you, go to, when you go to Africa and these poor suburbs of these kids live, and what a dollar can do for them, one dollar. What's a bloody dollar here? You'd hardly bother picking it up. If you see a dollar on the ground, you stop and pick it up. I started doing that and, and I've now got I support a teacher and a student at St Jude School in Tanzania. I've been over there and seen her. And, yeah. But I'll, I'll tell you a classic example of foster parents plan. And Gail actually used to work for that. Well before I knew, her. this one was in this this boy was in in Uganda. We went up. I went up. Gar wouldn't go up there. I went up there. It was fantastic going up there with a couple of people from Foster Parents Plan, and went to one of the schools. One of the issues up there, there's no sanitary things for the girls when they have the period, so they can't go to school. Shocking. So some of the money I was giving to this boy was going to the school to give sanitary for the girls. It was unbelievable the drive we did. I can't think where it was, but but it was about a four hour drive. These two people took me up there, going through all these towns and things. They could sort of tell me what was going on. It was just, yeah, unbelievable. So you got the AM in 2019. Is that right? Mm-hmm. 
I mean, what was the AM for? What did the citation say? Oh, community. Georgie wants to know, what does the AM mean to you? Oh, very, very humbling. Unbelievably humbling what the people put in for it. And I know, I know you're not supposed to know who, who organised, but I do um, know who organised it. And congratulations I got from people. So it's not hard for me to get tears in my eyes, but unbelievable. I'm very involved in the committee. I'm trying to, the committee, we're trying to get some sort of mural on a silo, and it's quite quite a big ta task to get that, get permission to do it. And I've done quite a bit of work down there planting trees and things. To happen, but yeah. they do look amazing. Oh, I think we, we could make it a brilliant one, but unfortunately, Grain Corp won't let us do it because they're worried, I think, worried about occupational health and safety, people wandering around and crossing the road. And I haven't given up. I will win, but it's a matter of battle. After the interview finished, Angus contacted me and asked for us to add in a few more of his notable community achievements for the record. Angus served about eight years on the board of the Murray Catchment Authority between 2000 and 2010. Angus also started the Rand Landcare Group about 30 years ago. He served on this for a long time and enjoyed the initiative greatly. When Angus left the Landcare Group at Rand, the group folded. You're not retired, are you, Angus? No. 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 Are you semi-retired or no? Oh, I'm trying to semi-retire a bit. Yeah. And that's better getting away from the farm because you're not there all the time. You can get the break of coming away in here sort of 24-7. Yeah, well, one of the stories, I broke my leg. This is, this is a long time ago. Yeah. I think there's anybody else on the farm. I had an old youth there. It was, didn't, this was harvest time. My auger fell on top of me and I smashed it. It was like that. And uh, shit, how am I going to get to the Will it start? Anyway, I got it going. Went to the, my neighbour. And I said, um, Margaret, I've broke my leg. And she said, oh, yeah, I broke my leg. So I put my foot out the door. <laughs> it was funny. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> I better call the ambulance. <laughs> I thought that was quite funny. What's been the happiest time of your life? Mm, a specific time. There's lots of periods that have been good. Like I think some of my... Extracurricular activities I've found very enjoyable, more more enjoyable than farming, really. Well, Gar would say that the day I married her, which is probably right. I can't think of a specific thing. I mean, we've been to trips and all that sort of stuff. And what are the most important values that you want to hand on to your family? Oh, giving to other people. Yeah. And what do you value the most? And why? Well, obviously the support I the support I get from Gail, but I think it's the people that have been fantastic to me, like the bloke that organised the AM and other people on the council that you know, started me on the path that I've lived. Yeah, I'll tell you another funny story. Do you right? <laughs> Goats. Um, don't have lanolin in them, and therefore, if it gets cold, they bloody die quite readily, and particularly after they're shorn. And you see the goats twice a year, and once in February. So we sure that these famous bloody goats. There's lots of stories about the bloody goats. These goats, and 
and it rained. And I, and I didn't worry. I thought, oh, well, it's only dropped so many degrees and blah, blah, blah. So I think, oh, they're right. But Gail had gone in to look at the goats. And there's dead and dying goats all over the paddock. Anyway, there's a fellow called Jim Nahen who was a fertiliser salesman. He came from somebody fertiliser. I said, Jim, come down to the house and have a cup of tea. We start walking down to the house and here's Gail with the back step, tears streaming on the face. <laughs> Going to the house, there's bloody dead and dying goats all through the place. And, and one, of the, one of the ways we read in the book is to revive them is to stick them in a hot bath. So there's some sitting in the bath that are drowning and otherwise <laughs> in the bloody oven, cook it up. <laughs> and Jim said, no, I don't think I'll come down for that cup of tea. <laughs> Now, I forget that was a good story distracted from the. I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it as a highlight. What do you value? The, no, <laughs> I'm going to say that happiest moment of my life. Yeah, okay. When the goats were in the bath. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. Well, this is a good one. My question is looking back on your life, what are you the proudest of? Her <laughs> question, which is similar, is if you think about a legacy that you'd like to leave, what kind of legacy would you like to leave? Oh, well, I think obviously the best legacy you leave is having well-adjusted children and grandchildren um, leading a good life, whether it's – I mean, I like to think they'd have the sort of charitable instincts that I've got, and I like to think George and Kate do too, and I, th- and I think they have to a degree. So the legacy I'd like to leave is that my descendants have uh, a charitable – bent to their life to help people that are less fortunate. That's what I'd like to leave behind. One last question then. Let's go forward, say, 25 years and your grandchildren, they're pretty young, your grandchildren are listening back to this audio and they're embarking on their lives as we're in their 20s. What life lesson would you like them to hear from you? Um, Well, a bit what I've just said. think, Think about and help people that are less fortunate than what you are and contribute to a a better society of some shape or form. I guess that's what I'd like my grandchildren to go into life. As I say, one of the the things I thought if I didn't farm, I'd be was a psychologist to help people. So I'd like to have that sort of mentality. And I think Kate's good at that, at her teaching. She has the opportunity to help these kids a whole range of abilities, and I'd like her to continue that, that sort of philosophy in her life. George is a bit busier than that, but she certainly is involved in the community and does community things. So I would like them to be involved in the community, help the community, both locally and in a broader field, and helping people that are less fortunate. And say that, I think by and large, you get more out of them than the receiver. So I'm hoping that's the sort of philosophy she'll live, live a life on.